You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more. Every Thursday at 7 p.m. Today's guest of The Political Periscope is Maria Tomak, head of the Crimea Platform Department in the mission of the President of Ukraine in Crimea. Political Periscope Soon it will be the 18th of May, the day of remembrance of Crimean Tatar deportation. What is the current situation of Tatars in Crimea, Crimean Tatars? Mm, what was it after 2014 and how did it change after the 24th of February 2022? Thank you for raising this important issue. And actually, I think it's important to start this story not even from 2014, uh, when the war started, the Russian aggression started. But when it comes to Crimea and Tatars precisely, we may start this story from the 18th century. It's the best way to tell this story, because that is the point when the persecution of Crimean uh, Tatars started and de facto attempts to expel them from Crimea by the Russian Empire of various iterations. So uh, in 18th century, there were 90, almost 90 percent of Crimean Tatars in Crimea. Uh, and uh, after the first annexation, the number has dropped significantly. And uh, then uh, in 20th century, when Stalin deported Crimean Tatars, there were almost no Crimean Tatars at all in Crimea. And when the Russian aggression against Ukraine started with the occupation of Crimea, there were uh, 13% of Crimean Tatars in Crimea, and the majority of population in Crimea, as we all know, are um, uh, Russians. Uh, those people who were actually um, transferred to Crimea, the I mean, the Crimea was colonized by Russia for several centuries, therefore no wonder that there is a majority of um, uh, Russian population there. But um, so, and why... I recall this is just because we can see that currently Russia is occupying power, uh, uses the same tools, the same practices in Crimea as it used uh, in the previous uh, centuries. Of course, I don't uh, talk about literally deportation as it was in Stalin times, but sometimes Crimean Tatars themselves refer to the current processes in Crimea as a hybrid deportation meaning that uh, there are mm, the circumstances that are created by the occupying power are aimed at suppressing Crimean Tatar people and squeezing them out from uh, the uh, Crimean Peninsula. So right after the beginning of the occupation, um, uh, I mean, one of the maybe significant uh, uh, things that uh, was made by the occupying uh, power, which is really easy to understand, and is easy to measure because uh, to the lots of processes in terms of particular measurements, we have no access because this territory is occupied and non-international independent mechanism as well. They have no access there. But Russia banned Majlis of the Crimean Tatar people, for instance, the self-governing body of Crimean Tatars. Uh, and they persecute, they not just banned, they criminalized Majlis as the so-called extremist organization. 
and they also persecute the leaders of the Crimean Tatar people. That what is the which is the reason uh, of why they all not all but uh, like the key uh, persons are in the mainland Ukraine uh, because they are persecuted in the in the in Crimea and. Probably most remarkably uh, is um, Mustafa Jamilev, uh, which is an absolutely legendary person for Crimean Tatars, for Ukraine, and even for Turkey, for instance. Uh, in Turkey, like everyone knows Mustafa Jamilev. He is the Soviet, uh, the dissident of Soviet times and the leader of the Crimean Tatar people. He spent years and years in Soviet uh, camps. So, and uh, he has to live in the mainland Ukraine because he cannot live in Crimea because of the persecution, of the criminal persecution. So, and in general, it's like the, the after 2014, uh, the Crimean Tatar language is um, decreasing uh, and kind of wisely oppressed uh, by the Russian Federation, I would say in the manner as it was done in Soviet Union, because uh, in Soviet Union there was no prohibition on using Ukrainian language. But, you know, in the meantime, we all understand that uh, the policy was shaped in a way that Ukrainian language was kind of um, under the pressure and Russian language was supreme, so to say. Right. So that is something similar that happens now uh, in Crimea as well. And the uh, of course, the uh, political prisoners, which is another uh, remarkable thing is that currently we're aware of 182 cases of political persecutions uh, of, uh, of Ukrainian citizens in Crimea and 116 of them are Crimean Tatars, so approximately 60%. If you compare it to the uh, number of population that I mentioned before, so 30% 30 30 of Crimean Tatars in Crimea, but among political prisoners there are 60% of Crimean Tatars. We can see that pattern of persecution clearly. And uh, after February 24, um, these trends, they are more maybe obvious also. I mean, the political persecutions are just ongoing. There are some new articles that are being used. Some of them are specifically, I would say, uh, Crimean Tatar targeted. For instance, the persecution of the members, so-called members of the Noman Chilebi Jihan Battalion. Jihan, it's a Crimean Tatar kind of historical figure. Uh, and uh, so there are people arrested that are accused of membership in this uh, battalion. So it's specifically, and almost all of them, I believe, maybe with one exception, are Crimean Tatars. But also, which is, I think, also important and remarkable, uh, uh, the mobilization. Uh, mobilization uh, that started in Russian Federation in September of the previous year, and of course it affected the occupied territories and Crimea in the first place. And as far as we know, uh, because we conducted this monitoring, also Majlis conducted this monitoring and helped a lot those people who were trying to flee Crimea to avoid the mobilization. The summonses for the, for the mobilization were issued specifically in the places of compact living of Crimean Tatars. And we cannot uh, provide any figures, of course, because we have no data of the occupying forces. But we, I mean, according to what we know, we can see that there is this clear pattern of providing the summonses, mobilizing Crimean Tatars specifically, right? On the first hand, it coincides with the policies of uh, Russian Federation when when they uh, mobilize the those people who like representatives of the ethnic republics of the Russian Federation, right? We 
hear a lot about Buryat people, about other represent like Chechen people, etc., who are um, uh, often uh, times accused of committing uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity. But at the same time, in some cases, they try to promote this fact that there are Crimean Tatars among those mobilized trying to present like it's the proof that uh, Crimean Tatars do support the occupation of Crimea, which is absolutely not not true. And maybe um, to finish this uh, initial, um, uh, the answer to, to this initial question, um, so this also there's this dramatic parallel parallels, which are parallels to some extent, but still they are dramatic. So because of these uh, issues with the documents that um, people in the occupied uh, territories have, because lots of them, they don't have valid Ukrainian documents, right? Because they did not have possibility to travel prior to the full-scale invasion to mainland Ukraine. And for instance, to get the new photo in the passport or, you know, to, to extend the, uh, ac the documents, etc. So they have to go to the places where they can come without having this um, valid Ukrainian documents, and they have to travel to Central Asia. So you can imagine uh, those people that were deported once in 1944 to the Central Asia, they now, now they have to go there again. I mean, they're not deported, but they have to go there again in order to avoid mobilization or to avoid the persecution. So that is one dramatic kind of uh, thing about all this story that is remarkable to my point of view. Well, you've actually answered all the additional questions I wanted to ask after your Sorry. first uh, answer. No problem. And uh, that's the point of, of this interview. So let's move to Crimean platform itself. It started in 2021. So we didn't have much time before the full scale uh, Russian invasion on Ukraine. But how does it function after the invasion? Are there any actual results of uh, Crimean platform? Mm, what can be changed in its functioning? What can be improved? And uh, does it even right now make sense in light of the war? Of course, uh, the Western world is helping Ukraine, whole Ukraine. Uh, so why to focus on Crimea especially? Oh, the, uh, it will be another long us answer. <laughs> so, um, yes, indeed, Crimea platform was initiated in 2021 by the president of Ukraine because uh, we realized, we as a state and civil society, also Ukrainian, realized that uh, there is no, there's no place, um, political, some political platform where would Crimean issue raised, be raised. At that point of time, I just want to remind you that we had Normandy format, we had Minsk format. The, all those were all formats to discuss uh, Donetsk and Luhansk regions, so Donbas. There, there was no room uh, to bring Crimea to the um, live political agenda, right? So, of course, we had resolutions of the UNGA. But these are the resolutions of the UNGA, and uh, it's not so much influences the um, very uh, actual uh, political context, right? And I believe that the success of the first summit of the Crimea platform showed that it was a great decision, it was a great initiative and very proper one. And of course, as Crimea is still occupied, uh, there is a need to uh, support this format. And moreover, in the previous year, um, 
it was also like decided by the uh, our like the, the top officials of Ukraine, office of the president, Ukrainian parliament, and it was of course preserved, uh, provided uh, by the initial. Uh, architecture of the Crimea platform. We had this parliamentary uh, dimension. So there was um, a parliamentarian summit of the Crimea platform, first one held in in Zagreb. Um, so and um, we can see that uh, I can answer you uh, in this way. So uh, if we would not have problems with international uh, legal order, we would not need Crimea platform. But somehow resolutions unga resolutions uh did not lead to the deoccupation of crimea and somehow we still hear behind the closed doors or even in public discussions not to, not only in the closed doors like in media or like experts oftentimes refer to it like that there is some issue of the status of crimea which can be discussed no <laughs> no compromises on crimea Crimea is not a bargaining chip. There, there's no room to discuss uh, the status of Crimea also. And in my previous answer, I provided some of the reasons why, you know, because we cannot abandon Crimean Tatars, for instance. We understand that within the Russian Federation, these people are going to be eliminated in this way or another, like maybe not physically, but like strategically and, and, and so on. So, and therefore, I mean, we can feel it in our day-to-day -day work, in those discussions that we have, those talks that we have with journalists, with experts, with some diplomats, with politicians, with members of the parliament or foreign parliaments, that we need to explain once, once more and once, one, one and again that there can be no compromises on Crimea, that Ukraine is still tough on the territorial integrity of Crimea, and to explain the reasons behind it, to explain what is going on in Crimea, that it's about people, our citizens in Crimea, it's about Crimean Tatars, Ukrainians, it's about uh, also the fact that Crimea is used as a springboard for the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And now, of course, Crimea is uh, also a, a play, I mean, um, a springboard for this, um, uh, for the blackmail like a military base of Russia that is used to blackmail and to threaten uh, the Western countries. Uh, so, and of course, it's a huge problem within the Black Sea region. That's that's obviously where Russia has now this very significant control in in this region. Um, so, um, I would say that uh, about our tasks, and actually they were um, started to be fulfilled. I should say. Uh, so one of the one of the key goals uh, would be probably because you know uh, it's important to say that the um, mandate of our office of the Crimea platform mostly covers domestic issues when it comes to uh, international dimensions of the Crimea platform. That's something that MFA oversees. But still, I think that um, the fact that we managed as a state to bring to Crimea platform some of the states from the so-called global south. So not our, only our Western allies, that is an important fact, right? So for instance, Guatemala or um, Costa Rica or some other countries that participated in the events of the Crimea platform, we all understand that we would love to have the, their countries like India, Brazil, um, uh, South, uh, South African Republic, but uh, I hope that gradually we will come to that point. 
But as of now, I can assure you that from our point of view, it's absolutely necessary that Crimea platform uh, exists. And hopefully um, at some point, because from the very beginning, Ukrainian president even invited Russia to participate. And it would be good at that point of time, because um, uh, maybe it would have been allowed to come up with some decisions of Ukraine gaining back control over Crimea, uh, so to say, peacefully in the diplomatic, political diplomatic means. Uh, but now, I mean, we're not sure how exactly the, the occupation of Crimea would happen. Uh, but still, Crimea platform can provide a good platform to discuss the parameters of how exactly Russia is going to deoccupy Crimea. Some people argue that Crimea was never indeed Ukrainian, that it was Tatar, that it was Russian, that Khrushchev gave it to Ukraine. What would you tell them? So it's a very important question. Uh, it's And unfortunately, it's not just about some people. It's about that narratives that exist in the minds of decision makers and that influence the political decisions. So that's the key problem <laughs> for us. Uh, that mantra of Putin that Crimea has always been Russian, it's rooted so much in the minds of many people who are absolutely pro-Ukrainian, but they still believe in those myths that were implanted by Russia, even maybe in Soviet times or even earlier, because we all understand that for Russia has been used Crimea as a military base, like forever. Forever when they have the, the control over Crimea. It, it wasn't forever. Uh, but I mean, the, in the period of time when they had control over Crimea, it was used as a military base. And that is the huge uh, civilizational gap, I would say, between Ukrainian approach and Russian approach. So for Russia, Crimea is a military base. For Ukraine, Crimea is uh, a place of diversity, uh, a place uh, also a window to global south. Let's put it like this, right? Uh, because the place where uh, indigenous peoples live, it's the place where the biggest Muslim community of Ukraine lives, Crimean Tatars, right? So, and we have a set of those uh, false narratives that Russia uh, very successfully, I should say, spreads and continues to spread. And um, so, and we can talk uh, like, you know, uh, one by one, uh, go through all of them, but um, for those people who say that Crimea has always been Russian, I would just recommend to look into the Crimean history and to figure out, for instance, that before Crimea was annexed by Russia, by Moscow for the first time in 18th century, there was a Crimean Tatar Khanate there, Crimean Tatar state that existed there for 350 years, more than the US exists as of now, right? We cannot say that uh, Crimea has always been Russian, even because of this reason. If you go deeper into the history, you can see like lots of the stuff going on there, like Greece, uh, like ancient Rome, uh, Italian uh, um, Genoese, you know, all that uh, people who were doing like trade and so on and so forth. And you can also see even if you look at the map, which I think that it's a very useful exercise, just to look at the map, you can see that Crimea is related, is connected by land to mainland Ukraine, not to Russia. And that land bridge, or not land bridge, but the bridge 
that Russia built uh, after the beginning of the, of the occupation, it does not compensate this connection to Ukrainian mainland. Because of the flow of the water, Crimean, Tatar, uh, Crimean, North Crimean Channel, because of the electricity connection, and just because it has always been like one region, southern Ukraine and Crimea, Priazovia, right, Steplands, Steplands. Uh, and at the point when uh, the Catherine the Great uh, eliminated or cancelled Crimean Tatar Khanate, at the same period of time, Ukrainian Hetmanate was also cancelled, right? So Ukrainian, like Cossack state, so like one of the predecessors of Ukrainian state was also uh, destroyed. So, um, so that's that's the the general kind of uh, uh, arguments about that. But when it comes to the Crimean Tatar people, so the the, the those facts that I referred to previously, um, Crimean Tatars, I mean, at the level of the uh, representative body of Crimean Tatars, Majlis, and like that's a common knowledge, I would say that Crimean Tatar people support Ukrainian state, right? So they prefer that Crimea is a part of Ukrainian state. Uh, they did not, they have not ever supported that Crimea is somehow uh, under the uh, control of the Russian Federation. On the contrary, they have very strong political memory that makes them be unloyal, like absolutely unloyal towards the Russian Federation. And But I think that it's important that in the previous years, in the recent years, it was really backed up by Ukrainian policies. So Ukraine adopted the law on indigenous peoples of Ukraine, where, where Crimea, Crimean Tatars are recognized as the indigenous peoples. Uh, Ukraine uh, adopted the strategy of the development of the Crimean Tatar land. Uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine recognized at the level of the state some of the Muslim um uh, uh, the holidays, right? Important for Crimean Tatars, also Kurban Bayram, Ramadan Bayram. Also, recently, Ukrainian president hosted Iftar, where he invited Crimean Tatar warriors who fights uh, within the armed forces of Ukraine. So, and this, and now we develop the draft law on the status of Crimean Tatars specifically, you know, to ensure the rights of Crimean Tatar people. So, um, uh, so yeah, sorry, I, I, I talked too long because you touched a very sensitive for us issue that we fight every day. Yeah, it leads me to another question. Exactly. Uh, what is the meaning, the role of Majlis in Ukraine? What can it be? What model of autonomy will be in Crimea after the, the occupation? Will it be the autonomy of Crimea, of the autonomy of Crimean Tatars or maybe some different model? Uh, so, uh, it's actually two questions. Uh, I will start with the the second one. Uh, as for the status of Crimea, the model. So, um, now it's, I mean, now this issue is one of the issues that is discussed inside Ukraine. So, I mean, I can only refer to the status quo, because currently, according to the constitution of Ukraine, Crimea is the autonomous republic of Crimea. So, it's the autonomous republic. Uh, whether it can be change somehow in the, in the future? Probably yes, but it won't happen uh, when we have martial law because martial law does not allow to make amendments to the constitution. So it's not relevant for like nowadays particularly, but in the future it may be changed. And now we have like internal discussion on how it should be and whether it should be at all, right? But uh, I think that it's very important that in the meantime, 
when we cannot um, make changes in the constitution, uh, now, at, even at this stage, even in the situation of the war, we try to establish as much rights for the Crimean and ensure the rights of the Crimean other people as it's possible. So that's why I quoted the, our work on the draft on the Crimean Tatar people, status of the Crimean Tatar people, because we have elaborated this draft law jointly with the Majlis of the Crimean Tatar people, with th some of the experts on the international law and the, specifically the, uh, the law on the indigenous peoples, right? Because it's the part of the UN kind of system, uh, of, 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 uh, like international legal system. Uh, and also with the members of the parliament. So in our day-to-day -day work, we all the time uh, consult with Majlis, include Majlis in the discussions uh, regarding some uh, like legal acts or some other issues, invite them to the meetings with our international partners, et cetera, to the briefings, et cetera, et cetera. So there cannot, I can assure you, so, uh, so, so that, that there cannot be any important decisions taken in Ukraine on Crimea without the participation of Majlis. I cannot imagine. And I think it's also important that we have, um, uh, I mean, I cannot say that lots, but we still have Crimean Tatar people on the important positions within the state. On those positions that are related to Crimea, like the permanent representative uh, of the president of Ukraine on Crimea, who is uh, Crimean Tatar, uh, Tamila Tasheva, but also on the positions that are not related to Crimea. For instance, the um, uh, fund of the state property, I mean, which is absolutely not related, or the deputy uh, minister of foreign affairs, uh, uh, I mean, Ejo Parshi is a Crimean Tatar, members of the parliament, they're members of the parliament for Crimean Tatars. So, um, I mean, even in this situation, we try to, uh, without the excess, now it's a very important discussion. Yes, we all understand that we don't have to wait for Crimea to be deoccupied to work on some important strategies regarding the deoccupation. But when it comes to the status, it's the issue under the, the under the discussion, I would say so. Mm, even today, some journalists uh, published the list map of uh, Russian military facilities on Crimea. So is Crimea right now a possible direction of Ukrainian counteroffensive? So our institution uh, doesn't deal with military issues. So I cannot comment on that because it's the competence of the um, of our army and our Minister of Defense and of the President. So unfortunately, I cannot comment on that. But uh, I maybe would just like to mention one thing. Uh, among those explosions that happened uh, in Crimea for the previous like uh, several months, there were several of them that were acknowledged by Ukraine that Ukraine was um, initiated that right or or committed these uh, explosions. Uh, so, and um, I would like just to point it out because um, a Russian president threatens everyone that he would use nuclear weapon uh, once Russian territorial integrity is uh, violated. But as you know, they also tried to join some of the other Ukrainian regions to Russian Federation, you know, with this full-scale invasion. They pretended that uh, Kherson region, Zaporizhia region is also belong to, uh, to Russia, uh, which does not make, and theoretically, they, and even legally, <laughs> They uh, should have been used nuclear weapon already because um, Ukraine targets uh, these territories, of course, trying to liberate them. So 
I mean, I, I think it's important also to uh, not to uh, uh, not to follow this blackmail of Putin, uh, because I think it, it. I mean, if we if we surrender to this blackmail, it can be even worse in Poland. Uh, it's, I think it's pretty clear that Putin will not stop. So what Putin done after he occupied Crimea, he turned it into a military base and he tried to go for them. That will happen next also. So he will not be satisfied. He will turn that territories again into the uh, springboard and will attack again other territories. And he will do that again and again and again. So I just would like to say that it's an illusion that any like um, compromises on Crimea, if Ukraine will not kind of liberate Crimea, that would lead to a peace. It's not true. It's a huge manipulation or misleading uh, thinking. Even on behalf of those people who wish peace, who wish Ukraine all the best, or who even wish that Ukraine gets the victory, they somehow think they fall into this trap. So uh, if Crimea is not liberated, there will be no peace. That's for sure. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was The Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m.